0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We have a real treat this week. Radcliffe Bailey taped live with Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln last week. We've done a couple dozen live audience tapings all over the country over the nine or so years, but this was the first time we've done one virtually, and it was a blast. So thanks so much to the Sheldon staff, UNL students and faculty, and to Radcliffe Bailey and his studio for making this work. Before we get to the program, some housekeeping. First, a big thank you to Agence France-Presse, which featured this program and three other podcasts I enjoy, The Art History Babes, The Lonely Planet, and Art Curious, in a list of four art podcasts it recommends. AFP said that our show, quote, cannot be listened to with half an ear. It requires all your attention, and that it is definitely worth the effort. Love it. Thanks again. Next, please remember to rate and review the program, Five Stars Please, wherever you download the podcast, or even better yet, tell a friend you enjoy us. Now, Radcliffe Bailey. Bailey is included in Person of Interest at the Sheldon. The exhibition explores portraiture from the late 19th century to the present in ways that test the definition of the genre. It was curated by Melissa Ewan and Wally Mason, and will be on view through July 3rd, 2021. Bailey's paintings, sculptures, and installations explore themes such as history, migration, and the relationship between geography and ancestry. He's had solo exhibitions at institutions all over America, including at the Aldrich in Ridgefield, Connecticut, the Birmingham Museum of Art, the Blaffer Gallery at the University of Houston, the New Britain Museum of American Art in Connecticut, the Clark Atlanta University Art Galleries, Toledo, the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, and a whole lot more. Radcliffe Bailey, after the break. On Saturday, November 21st, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston opens the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for Modern and Contemporary Art, capping a decade-long project to complete the MFAH Susan and Faya's Seraphim Campus. Visit mfah.org slash getmodern for details. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a new free app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere. The app isn't just good for one exhibition or one institution, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural partners, including some with which you might not be as familiar, creating exciting opportunities for you to find and consider ideas and interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for the Camden Arts Center, the Central Park Conservancy, the Drawing Center, the Frick Collection, the Guggenheim Museum, the Imperial War Museum Duxford, London Mithraeum Bloomberg Space, the New York Botanical Garden, the Noguchi Museum, and the Serpentine Galleries. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies as part of its ongoing support of cultural institutions. Its primary aim is to expand access to the arts and culture through the app. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, hear from artists, curators, and experts— and to get the stories behind exhibitions. Take a virtual drive down Sunset and experience the iconic boulevard through the lens of artist Ed Ruscha. Featuring more than 65,000 photos taken between 1965 and 2007, this interactive online exhibition guides us from downtown L.A. to PCH, past sites like the Cinerama Dome, Roxy Theater, and Chateau Marmont. Watch the storefronts, billboards, and cars change over time. Search for a favorite neighborhood or landmark. Learn more and start driving at 12sunsets.getty.edu. Radcliffe Bailey, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Mm, thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: I wanted to start with migration because your work is rich with, full of an address of, of migration, whether forced migration such as through the Middle Passage to the Americas or within the United States, such as the Great Migration. And people who are with us on Zoom tonight can see one, one such reference behind you. I guess from your work that your interest in migration as a subject or theme goes back at least to the 1990s. What brought you to it? Family history, something in school, something else?
1: Yeah, all above. Migration was always important for me because of number one, my relationship with my family. I was born in New Jersey. My parents moved to Atlanta in 1972. Number one, it was really about the experiences growing up in the city like Atlanta. Growing up in New Jersey, it was a whole different relationship. The reason why my family was in New Jersey on my father's side was they were running around the railroad trying to migrate to Canada. They ended up in Jersey and met some Quakers and, and a part of South Jersey. And that was kind of like the beginning of my, my family stopping before going to Canada. But, you know, like later on in life, uh, my parents decided that they wanted to bring me and my brother up in a different environment. And where we were in New Jersey was pretty much a pretty rural area. It was, you know, pretty much in you know, the garden state. So we kind of grew up around uh, my grandfather, raised asparagus. It's a whole different kind of relationship. All our family members lived on one street. We were ourselves. We were, our, you know, we were our best friends. We were our family. We were close by each other. We were our neighbors. But my parents moved to Georgia and one of the reasons why they moved to Georgia, as they were coming down south, they stayed at a hotel, a hotel and a restaurant, which was called Pascal's. Pascal's was where Dr. King used to have his meetings. And it was an African-American hotel. And they met a guy named Reverend Tobin. Reverend Tobin was a teacher. And then a week later, my parents moved to Atlanta. And so he would often, we would often travel by train anyway. So migration was just something that was kind of, it kind of comes in and out of my work a lot. I think someone of the first artists that I met was Jacob Lawrence. And, you know, I was always fascinated with his work by way of the migration series. You know, I was in art school, it's one of those things where, what, what is my work gonna be about? Where's my work going? And I decided to do something and focus on the personal. One thing happened to me. And so we were between Virginia, New Jersey, DC, Philly. I just remember one Christmas when all my family members were all together, my grandmother gave me a photo album of family members. It was like over photographs of 10 types. And she gave it to me, but she knew that I was going to art school, but she had never really known my artwork. And, and that was like one of my biggest influences. So I'm constantly trying to deal with that subject on and on and migration in terms of North to South, East to West, and from outer space to the sea. So it's a combination of a lot of stuff. And I think part of that was just fascinated with the future as well as holding on to the past.
0: You know, I can't, we'll come back to that photograph album and photographs in a bit, I've been thinking about how there have been so many museum shows in just the last few months, even amidst the pandemic, of artists who are examining migration. And y'all are about kind of the same age. Julie Maritou, whose retrospective is uh, now in Atlanta, has been addressing migration in her work for 20, 25 years. Torquasi Dyson, who just had a big show in New Orleans, has been working on abstractions related to migration for for a long time and is working on it now and in, in residency at the wexner at ohio state of course there's there's you and I, it, it, that kind of shared interest in subject and theme among three such prominent artists all about the same age made me wonder if there was something in the culture a book a movie in the mid to late 90s maybe that hmm. maybe encouraged you, not that you needed encouraging, but you know, the, the hmm. kind of functioned as a broader cultural permission.
1: Nothing but a man. There's a movie called Nothing But a Man. It was uh, Ivan Dixon and Abby Lincoln.
0: Wow. Art collector yeah. Ivan Dixon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so I just remember seeing that film, and it was that relationship of a man and a woman, and he worked on the Worked on the railroad land tracks, but that's the first thing that comes to mind out the blue. But there's all there's been. You say Amistad. Film.
0: Amistad was 1997.
1: Right, right, yeah, right, exactly. There's always been this when you when I think about migration too. You say films, I think about like music, Cold Train, Sun Ra, and it's a different kind of migration, but it's it's traveling through time. As traveling back and forth. And I, I find that, you know, those were some of my earlier influences in terms of my work. It was always, you know, turn on music, try to understand history through music, understand like, you know, you know, Coltrane did a piece based on the four girls who died in the church bombing. Sun Ra was playing music that was about a joyful noise and you know, I was talking about outer space, but it was always like deeped into the history, blues and jazz, and some of the marks that have been made by African Americans throughout history with music and then traveling to something that was pretty much about like the future. Kind of like creating a new a new kind of music. It's like I think about Beard and Rome Beard and I think about like the way in which he was collaging and putting together these different periods, pretty much like a quilt. But I, but I also think he's kind of rebuilding. There's one thing I think about, like as an African American artist, or artist of African descent. It's like truly cross the Atlantic and understand until later on in life and realize that here hey, we have this tool of DNA, and so we can trace it. So I kind of I always my first form of DNA is music relating and reacting to different sounds. I think we all relate to certain sounds and memories with sounds, so.
0: I, I have more about migration I want to know, but I can't let your Jacob Lawrence reference slide. How how, and where did you meet Jacob Lawrence?
1: I met Jacob Lawrence when I was in middle school by way of my mom. My mom was a school teacher, and so basically she knew the shows that were up in Atlanta, and at the time there was a show of... James Vandersee and P. H. Polk. And I remember going to see that show, but then later on, I remember going to see a show of Jacob Lawrence's work at the High Museum. And I remember my mother, you know, I was real shy at the time. My mother made me stand in line to get his autograph. And my mom said, My son wants to be an artist. And you know back to migration.
0: There there are lots of ways that migration foregrounds itself in your work, and we'll talk about it some of them ships and seas and, and railroad tracks. But I want to start with stars. They've played a role in your work and re- have recurred in your work for almost 25 years now, since at least, of course, the 1998 Distant Stars 2 up now at Sheldon. That's a pretty early work. You were about 30 when you when you made it. Stars are in the title, obviously, but also they are present in the white splotches of paint that suggest stars in the night sky. For me, across all of your work that addresses migration, stars are probably the most constant thing. How did you come to seize on stars as—I don't know—it's not a metaphor, is it? But it's a—it's a—it's <laughs> a—it's a familiar presence across all of your migration work.
1: I was one of the more obvious ones. Was that fascinated with trying to understand constellations and the North Star? I was always interested in the, you know, one of the first things I was fascinated when I was in school was I was always drawn to the power of African art. I never knew or understood. I knew that there were things that I read, but I also knew that there was much more to a lot of that objects. And and then at that time, I was fascinated with the Dogon. And the Dogon often talk about, you know, talk about stars and And um, I was reading a book called The Pale Fox. I just remember just being fascinated with it and trying to draw a connection. And, you know, as a kid, we're always looking up in the sky and I just wanted to understand and understand are there other worlds outside of here? And I'm staring at stars and constellations and thinking about traveling. And, you know, it's that whole thing with migration as well. And there's another thing that was connected with the stars for me. In a strange way, I remember making this piece was that I was fascinated with people trying to foresee the future and people trying to foresee the future by like, for instance, predicting, let's say nowadays people play the lottery and they're trying to predict numbers and foresee. And so in this work also is kind of like a constellation of numbers. And some of the numbers are, you know, be it like... Numbers of uh, birthdays and family members, dates of deaths, when people uh, make transitions. So, So, the stars themselves are really about those other worlds and the numbers as well.
0: Your use of stars has sent me off thinking into art history for a couple of weeks, thinking about stars and paintings history. And, you know, there aren't a ton it's not as common i think it's not as common a thing as one might think there's one big exception and that is the star of bethlehem in christian religious mm. painting and now it guides the three traveling men the magi to the manger in mm. which jesus was born and there's very often a very prominent star in those those paintings did you have any interest in that usage in christian painting
1: somewhat mm-hmm. in a strange way in a connection my grandfather was a deacon in the church and he And he built a church right outside of uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, in a town called Palmyra. And that church, I remember my grandfather working and building and working on the church. And I remember earlier work that I was working on when I was in college. I was making triptychs. There was a reference to that upbringing of my grandfather being a Baptist deacon. And then some, you know, I would make references to some Haitian practices, you know, be it like nowadays we see like a medical sign with the with the snakes wrapped around, kind of up across. And then some, I was referencing to Haitian deities, and that one in particular was dealing with Damballa, and, and it was really like a symbol that dealt with healing. And so religion was a thing that I avoided. I avoided in a strange way. I had some powerful experiences as a child. I've seen some things. I remember going to that church where my um, grandfather was a deacon, and it was a very small congregation. It was maybe about maybe 20 people that you would see at a moment. And it was, I remember seeing someone sit there with a pen, and I remember seeing these kind of scribbles. And there weren't really words. I couldn't really pick up exactly what they were doing. And then I later on as reading about some things about artists from the South or artists, I mean, people from the South and different practices of like a somewhat of a spirit writing. And so for me, that also, that just took me into a place where I was just like, instead of understanding religion, I really wanted to understand the practices of African Americans throughout the Southern parts of the United States, because I felt like they held on to certain practices, but it was not necessarily something that was not documented in a, in a book. There are books that people have written about these different practices, but my dad in the seventies and seeing with his friends with his with their bikes. And I think Robert Ferris Thomas wrote about it as like this rolling altar. And so when it comes back to you talking about the stars and the, the references to the stars are also, make these reference to like Haitian flags where they use sequins to deal with shiny objects to repel and thinking about things like glass and mirror. Then like, this piece that you have just in stars is a piece of plexiglass that's over top of the photograph and that was used as a way of repelling. So yeah, there's that reference as well.
0: So sometimes in your work, stars are a star field, like in a work like *Door of No Return*, which I hope we come back to in a minute, it's one of my favorite Baileys. Okay. And sometimes there's stars like five-pointed stars, as in sure. *Congo* from from 2013, or or like military insignia mm. calling stars. <laughs> in a work like *Stars Over the Argon Forest* from last from last year, to you, are you signifying or telling us something different? With those different ways of representing stars, or are you, you know, more referring to kind of the variety of references you can make with stars? Are you are you playing with the idea of a star?
1: Another part of you know, uh, my father's side of the family, they were some of them were Garveyites, and some of them are part of Marcus Garvey's movement. So Marcus Garvey always talked about the Black Star Line. And so that's that's a reference. That's something for me, like when I think about it, Garvey's movement was important to, to me to understand, but I also know that it wasn't as successful. But when I think about it, it's almost like a spiritual migration for me. And, you know, like, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, like nowadays we have a way in which we can do it a lot faster. We can take our DNA to understand and migrate somewhere else but when I was using those actual five-pointed stars, it was really a reference to Marcus Garvey and the black star line. Hmm. It kind of, you know, I go from, from the North star to a migration backwards with Garvey. Those are some references. And, and I think of when I look at the, when I look at military figures and, you know, African-Americans that have fought in, you know, like world war one, like that image that's up right now. And, uh, use military blankets to make the piece. But the, star, the stars kind of go back to almost like, um, I treat the stars like, how can I say? like a It's like an adornment, but it's also, it's a reference back to like that Nikisi figure where you would find like nails and, and objects that are grind shooting wow. within an object. But there's also for me, it's kind of like dealing with that thought and that subject matter and there's the action about me putting the stars in a particular way. And painting to me was almost like, I feel like I paint like a sculptor cause it's, there's a certain kind of energy that I have to work and I have to work in a certain scale. So I have to, I make, I make a lot of paintings are, are kind of big. So, and a lot of it has to do with like my arm reach and it has to do with my height. And it's almost like that act, it's like that performance That's for me. And that's kind of like one of those kind of acts that it's like a private act that happens in the studio. Cause you know, like I said, I'm not really like a religious person. I'm a spiritual person, but if I ever had to say that I went to church, church would be my studio.
0: There's almost nothing more paintery that a painter can say than referring to, you know, his or her reach as, as, as being defining all right, <laughs> the, the field. So you know, even 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 if you're not slapping oil around, that, that's still such a painter thing. So if there's if there's going to be migration, as we've been talking about migration, there must be a means of of migration. And sure enough, there is over and over again for decades now. In your work, you've given us ships, a reference to transatlantic journeys, and of course, especially to the Middle Passage. And you've given us railroad tracks and I think and please correct me if if you think I'm wrong increasingly as your career has gone on you've been willing to give us ships and tracks together in individual works such as works like east west south north or caravan from 2018 if i'm right about that that you're that you've been willing to do that more as the years go on why have you been willing to to pair those two two means of migration together
1: I'm trying to find new ways to talk about my family experience. I don't necessarily want to talk about my family experience and just all of a sudden stop talking about my family experience. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that we all have about our own personal experiences with our family communicating with a higher ancestor. You know, there's a sense of, sometimes there's a sorrow. Sometimes there's I'm celebrating. I'm dealing with that painful experience, but I'm also dealing with the movement and being moving, moving, moving forward. And I pair them together just based on, number one, um, you know, it's my father's father was a fisherman as well. And so I just Mm -hmm. remember some of those like personal experiences. But it's also like, you know, there's the ships. They don't necessarily there's sometimes there's a reference to slave ships, but there's also these references to other ships that are almost like spaceships to me where I'm traveling somewhere else. I'm fascinated with create some type of, I don't know what I want to call it science fiction, but you know, I remember hearing something a while ago as surreal is real to black people and kind of taking that thinking about those experiences and and creating vessels where we could travel and move and move in different places. And they look like different forms. I remember, you know, as I do some research on like contemporary African art and how these objects, well, I'm I'm speaking about traditional African art and how today, how those practices transfer to different new contemporary objects and still carry the same amount of weight. I'm trying to do that in a, in a way as well
0: speaking of ships that are very much not slave ships, your 2006 work Tricky, which shows kind of a, I'm not good at at nautical terms, but let's just call it a yacht with a sail. Right. If that's a thing (laughs) (laughs) um, that's reflective and has a hat on it. I had not thought of this until about half an hour ago, but tonight is the first time I've ever seen you without a hat on.
1: It's the earphones. <laughs> oh, it's the earphones. <laughs>
0: so I, I I so for listeners, I sent Radcliffe earphones and kind of made him wear them. So I'm I'm really messing him up. I, so I kind of can't help but wonder if the hat in Tricky is a little bit of a self-reference.
1: Yeah, it's a self-portrait. I think that most artists are tricksters. and we dabble in between different worlds. I make references sometimes to European deities by way of West Africa and Nigeria. And the top hat is that kind of reference to that kind of reference to Eshu, which is like a guardian of the crossroads. And when I think about the crossroads, I think about land and sea. And I think that we're at a crossroads between those two because the deeper you can go in the sea is just like, for me, it reminds me of the deeper you go in outer space and the similarities and how we sit in between those two worlds. So Tricky is that kind of person that sits at that crossroads. Tricky is that artist that can work in different realms, different materials, and speak in different languages and different tongues, and speaks in a way in which similar similar tongues and similar ways, but also very different ways. The piece itself is kind of just referencing I like that self portrait, and it's, it's somewhat close to my height, the size of the boat. And so that top hat is just one of those kind of things that kind of come up every once in a while. And, and I do these kind of pieces. It's an ongoing body of work that I do that references like this trick trickster and tricky. And some of them have top hats and some of them have like rocks and then some of the references to the rocks are references to like, you know, issue, which is like, if you have ever seen like one who practices, you'll see like this kind of rock with cowrie shells on it, on it. And so sometimes there's references to that, but it's it's loosely and there's, it's, I'm not trying to be very specific about it. I wanna make a nod, but I don't necessarily, like, the one thing that's that's interesting and it's fascinating is that I was drawn to African art by way of museums. A lot of us, a lot of us younger artists, we were drawn by uh, going to museums and seeing African art. And some of those earlier shows that I did see, I kind of wondered about that work and how it made it to its museum, how it crossed the Atlantic. and and how it ended up in different places, and how its influences, and I think about its life and how it still functions. I want to make work that does the same thing, where I don't give you all the answers.
0: My guest is Radcliffe Bailey. We'll be right back after a break. The Nasher Sculpture Center is ready to welcome you back. Kick off the fall season with a stroll through the Nasher Garden and visit today to see Barry X Ball remaking sculpture, the first U.S. museum survey of works that combine 3D scanning technologies with traditional sculpture techniques. Whether online or in person, find new ways to enhance your visit, from time ticketing, weekly music performances, to expanded digital content on the Nasher app. Learn more at NasherSculptureCenter.org. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton MacDonald Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American Abstract Artists, such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhart, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Caron, known for their participation in Abstract Expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of nonfigural or abstract art. For more information on Small Abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And now back to my conversation with Radcliffe Bailey. So you have mentioned a couple times that in 2006, you used a commercial DNA test in the hopes of learning about your mother's ancestry. And you learned that her lineage went back to Guinea and Sierra Leone and to the Mende people the High Museum near you in Atlanta has three Mendy masks. Uh, and in fact, it, it acquired one just about the time that DNA test came in. <laughs> I guess first, did you have something to do with that?
1: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with it. But I enjoy seeing the piece. I actually <laughs> made a piece that was in reference to it, where I actually printed on steel that image of that mask in the collection with. A, with glass in front of it, which catches a reflection of that sculpture. That, that's the shape of a Mende mask, but I did it on a, on a lathe. And so it's, it's a reference to it, but it's, it was about the patina. The patina itself, which when I think about the Mende, I think about the, the Mende women. The Mende women are the ones that pretty much run the community. In my family, on my mother's side, my grandmother was like that person. And my mother had a lot of sisters. And so that's kind of like a reference to my grandmother as well, because she would also refinish old furniture. But she would rub it in such a way and put a patina on it that it almost reminded me of like the patina that you would see on African art. So there are those kind of loose references and throwing that relationship with DNA and tracing my mother, my mother's side of family. That's where... My work became a little bit more personal towards the the DNA references. Before in the past, it was more like the references were brought to me by way of the museum. But at this point, knowing my DNA or or parts of my DNA and being able to reference it in a different way.
0: So as, as we've talked about a little bit, there are references to African objects and African peoples in your work throughout, really. You know, including in, in, in as early as that '98 piece, where it has written on the window just above the photograph towards Nigeria and Benin. Do you think that what you learned from that DNA test changed how you approach African art or African cultural objects? No,
1: I think I did pick up more. But I was really at the time of doing this work, even though it's personal, where I have a family member from that photo album that my grandmother gave me. I also know that the makeup of a lot of African Americans, we are of a lot of different people. And so that was pretty much like a reference with this one as well. It's like I had logs from the slave trade and numbers of people that crossed the Atlantic. And so on some of these pieces, I have numbers and they would say like 30,000 from, you know, from Nigeria. It would have reference to the Congo or, and so I was just really jotting down information as I would pick up information on the work. It was a way of like, the work was becoming more like a like a notepad and it was very loose. Mm. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that, but I'm also like very fascinated with self-taught artists from the South. And then, you know, there was also like the influence of like a Jean-Michel Basquiat. It was, you know, there's a lot of like parts of me trying to connect a lot of dots and understand it's, the painting is also, when I think about DNA too, the painting has uh, it's painted with Georgia clay. So on top of the piece, it's like Georgia clay. And that was just a reference to number one, there was a reference to my backyard. Number two was thinking about the native Americans and blood and those lost and civil, you know, those fought in civil wars. So it's a combination of a lot of those different thoughts all together it's not one specific thought but it's several different thoughts and I think you know with that work is as well it was all about layers and layering one thought over top another thought over top another thought over top another thought you know I wish I could write because I would love to write a book (laughs) but I look at my work as like a page out of a book of my life.
0: There there are a couple of things that come to mind when when you say that. One is a work from and I'm afraid I don't remember the year, maybe 2008, called Returnal, which has I think sequences of your DNA but also references Minkisi. Right, which are common in Congolese religious practices or were and, and so when you talk about using the work as a kind of notepad for references that may, may or may not refer to things that are in the work, I guess that's probably one example of, of how you've done that.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: I think another thing you do a lot in the work is you make art about things you can't possibly know the history of, which is to say you take what we don't know. And find a way to address it in your work anyway. And so I, I when when I work on, on on writing history, what I don't know generally drives me batty. And I, you know, there are things I wish I could know <laughs> so that I could understand what the heck I'm trying to write. And appreciating, of course, that artists are trained differently than journalists or historians. Do you remember how and why it became okay for you to make art about what you couldn't possibly know? To make art that mashes up some of the references, like like the ones we were just talking about in *Returnal*.
1: There, there are parts of it I do know. Some of the parts of it I know is you know are part of like you know I'm just trying to draw those connections between like those artists that those self-taught artists that are in the South and and they're all around the country, but particularly like in the South. I think about the use of materials and I think about my choice of materials at moments like well. You know, I want to work in clay, okay? But there may be a reference to my fascination with the Great Mosque in Mali. So it's more like I'm making those references and those are some of my thoughts, but I'm not being very specific about it. But I'm also being very personal in a way where it's from my backyard, which were Civil War grounds. And so there's a lot of that, you know, I do read a lot about African art. I do try to understand as much as I can, because that's just something I'm just fascinated with. I create problems to solve and have questions that I want to answer. I want answered, but I, I feel like I have to work them out within the work. At one time, I remember making work and I was very insecure. I felt like I'm using these old photographs and I don't know those actual people, but I do know that there is a connection between my family. So it's almost like I've learned to become comfortable in that space enough to just, because they're, these, the work is more about a, asking questions as, than it is about having answers. So I have more questions than I have answers.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I love that artists have permission to kind of do that in ways that others of us can't. I value that mm-hmm. enormously. So I think a work that asks questions I, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier is "Door of No Return" from from 2015, which I think is one of your your most major works, and it's a work that kind of brings together a bunch of things we've talked about. We've we've talked about how often you have photographs and other objects behind windows, behind plexi or glass, and 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 here here is a work where we see the sea kind of in a window, hovering in this in, in, in a star field. It's Certainly, at least for me, your your most psychologically intense work. I guess first, did the does the sea in that picture come from a specific place? Is it a specific sea?
1: It is. It is. You know, I usually don't really say exactly where it came from, but the door no return. The piece of stuff from bore Island, the coast of Senegal. There was a reference to that, but it was I basically reference a photograph that I shot when I was in Cuba. I started drawing the connections a little bit because I just started thinking about the practices of the people in Cuba and trying to make a you know when making the piece I didn't really think about it at the time I just really wanted a beautiful photograph of the ocean because it's like when I think about very painful subject matters I always try to figure out poetic way of talking about the past there's a way i want to do it and tell a story i can paint things that are painful and difficult but i don't want to paint it in a gory or dark way i kind of want to i want to look at the i mean when i think about um, the history of african-american or african-americans in this country i think about like there was a lot of painful experiences But I also I'm really about celebrating who I am in such a way where I really want to deal with the joys and beauty of beauty of who I am. But when I think about this piece in general, it was like, you know, there was a very like I remember going to the door, no return. And I remember going through the darkness of it and seeing the areas where the Africans were kept. Uh, very small spaces right before they are put on ships and taken away. And that was their last touch of land, of home. And I think about it, when I went there, I took a, I rented a fishing boat. And I rented a fishing boat while on the island, and I wanted to film. And I filmed uh, a video of a fishing boat pulling up, pulling up to the door, no return, and going away from the door, no return, So the piece itself was also, there are other parts of it that I've been working on in the past with this piece. So it was like that reference. But then it's also, when you look at that, look at the space, the glitter screen, the glitter screen was was really about like outer space as well. The outer space, but then also, it was, I wanted to make something that was kind of very minimal. So that when you look at the piece, you weren't really, you know, if you didn't read the title, I don't know if, a lot of people would really pick up on the subject of it. I wanted to make something that was kind of like simple, but yeah, that's that's where the image came from.
0: I'm also interested in how many different ways you have of portraying water or or the sea In, in a work like Windward Coast, West Coast Slave Trade, which you've made and installed a number of times over the years. You're using piano keys, are they called keys? Yeah, yeah. Pian- you know, the, the, not, not the keyboard piano keys, but the long wooden things that go back in a in a piano to reference water. You've done that in Storm at Sea, also a piece from from two thousand seven. Is it important to you to have kind of a toolkit of different ways of presenting ocean and water? Because it sure seems <laughs> when I've seen the different installations of these pieces, it, I mean. At the risk of sounding trivial, it looks like you're having a heck of a lot of fun figuring out how to show us water.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I'm actually, yeah, I am having a lot of fun. I know with this piece, when I first when I first created the piece, it was basically a lot of us, we, we don't use a conventional art store. Sometimes we just go to very odd places. And as a kid, there was this piano shop that was in walking distance from my house. And I remember as a kid walking down the street and I remember looking in and seeing all these pianos. And I remember years ago going by this piano shop and driving by and I saw I noticed a fire was in the back of it and smoke. And I drove in, I pulled in and they were these guys were trying to get rid of all these pianos. And basically they were just putting all the wood on fire. So I said, well, you know, let me have all these piano keys and I brought them back to the studio. I didn't know what, exactly what I was gonna do with them, but I brought them back to the studio and I started stacking them on the floor of my studio. And at the time, I I think it was like a three or 4,000 square foot studio. And I just dropped all the piano keys on the floor and I came in and I was like, that's the perfect place where they should be. And so the piano keys, you know, I started playing with them and they turned into the ocean. I would play, um McCoy Tyner and Coltrane and I would put on my earphones and t- turn up the music and I would just react to it and drop the piano keys and then I realized like as I was dropping the piano keys I started hearing the sounds like a ripping of waves and you know like the water as it trickles mm-hmm. and so I started recording those sounds as well so with the piece itself there is a recording that comes from I have a, a conch shell that has a speaker on the inside of it and outside of the conch shell is playing those the sounds of the piano keys dropping and you can hear me ripping the boxes open and it sounds like waves but yeah and it was just fascinated with you know it's back to like the whole thing i was thinking about was like music was like my first form of dna and i was thinking about those piano keys and i'm thinking about all the you know different people who played those piano keys and all the different sounds that came from those piano keys and thinking about them all kind of jumbled together but then also thinking about the history of jazz music african i mean you know jazz and i was thinking about the way in which all these kind of sounds were kind of collaged together and you know it's also like there's a lot of ebony and ivory on the piano keys themselves as well so it's all that kind of mixed up and you know it goes back to that experience of my relationship with my father my father's father being on the ocean and feeling so small when you're on the ocean, and so it's a combination of that. These different places where the cities and the you could see like the debris from the buildings all kind of stacked and pushed for by way of by way of the water. So that was always a reference by the way the ocean can do damage.
0: We've talked a couple times about your use of photographs in 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 works and where some of those photographs have come from. And one of the things I've noticed in your use of photographs in a work like Before Cicero from 2016 is that the person in the photograph is looking right out at us, directly at at the viewer, and that the person in your artwork is then often surrounded by an abstraction, not always an abstraction like an abstract painting, but a group of, or a set of symbols that point us toward an idea. So there's this very specific one-to-one viewer to person in the artwork relationship, and then this broader abstraction that that builds us to an idea. And I wonder what about combining those two things is something that works for you, something you like, because it happens a lot.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) It kind of goes back to the conversation about tricky, I felt like I was in between two different worlds. I know different groups of people around the world, they talk about this other world, this other place. I think about Native people from different parts. Yeah, I was just think about the way in which they uh, talk about this other world. And there's this other world that was not necessarily so tangible. So when when I look at it, when I think about my use of paint and where I Use paint. I don't, I don't necessarily would call it abstract or anything, but I just there's a reference to sometimes that person that I remember when I was in church with my grandfather and someone doing this kind of scribbling and writing and kind of taking notes of the moment of that second and reacting to it like a rhythm, like a dance. For me, it was like when I think about the use of it, I think about the here's this world that's of the tangible and here's another world that where things are tangible but it's almost a trick too because photography is not quite as it's it's meant to be as tangible as you can be but I'm also dabbling with these different time periods as well and so I'm kind of juggling between that and sitting in between those different thoughts so for me it was always about like those two different worlds but it's also when I think about, and I and I talk about these references in terms of like, you know, like Jacob Lawrence and his use of the narrative and color and, and his work. And then I think about Vandersea and his photography. And I've always kind of felt like those were early references of people that I met where I'm pretty much combined in the two in a different kind of way. It's, it's strange, but you know, it's like, the photographs themselves are like objects. The objects that are like they have that same kind of presence like the objects that I would see when when I was in school of African art in the museum. It's that kind of like you 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 stand but so close to it, you want to become close to it. But also I, I really like to use the photographs in a very large way where they're like the actual scale of a person. But yeah, that's that's kinda that's kind of where i'm at when i when i think about those the use of photography and the painting
0: i like it and one of the uh, weird things about zoom is i feel like there's a gentleman standing behind your right shoulder who's been staring at me for the last time <laughs> <laughs> i want i want to kick off kind of the the, the q a portion here and that is someone who noted something that i think is is very much in in the water at the moment you live outside a major art center you live in atlanta and i think that as the pandemic has happened in the last seven or eight or nine months, we've seen a lot of artists move out of major art centers. How do you think being in Atlanta has has worked for you or not worked for you? How How is not having proximity to a New York or LA or London or Berlin mattered or not mattered for you?
1: Well, I'll say one thing. We do have the largest airport in the world. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably, it's 10 minutes away from me. I think I made the choice I made a more, a choice that was, that was based on my parents. You know, they're at that age, and I've always been pretty close to them. And it was always like me, my brother, and my mother and father. I always felt like I wanted to live close to them. I was lucky when I was young, when I first finished undergrad, because at the time, Atlanta was kind of like, it was a city that had art galleries, but even when I was in college, I would jump on a plane and go visit my cousin that lives in New York, and I sleep on his couch, and I go to the galleries, and then, you know, three days later, I'm jumping on a plane, going home, and going back to school, and then, you know, it was, it was always like I felt comfortable, you know. I I did at one time want to move to New York. I did at one time want to move to. San Francisco. I did want to move to a major art hub. I felt like that may have been like a thing, but it's also like, I think it's an important thing to do, but it's not necessary for everybody. Nowadays, uh, sometimes in cities that are not major art hubs, you know, keeping lights in the galleries are not necessarily it's not the easiest thing to do. They don't necessarily have the largest collectors in the world come into those spaces. It could be a mixed bag. I'm very supportive of the arts community that I um, that I uh, grew up in. It's been it was very important for me, but it's also it's I like my space. I see, I see the South as pretty much when I think about. I go as far as Texas and and as you know throughout the East Coast and I really ensure how close I am to some things and how far I am from other things too. You know, we all operate different. I try to think about how would it be if I was to make the work that I'm making in a city like New York. I think there would be a different edge to the work. Mm-hmm. I think uh, my sensibilities are, are different. And I think I, I've learned and I've grown to enjoy and love those sensibilities. And enjoy that space. It was also, it was, it, you know, it was puzzling that sometimes at moments too, because there was those like itches like, oh, I really want to be here. I really want to go here. And I really want to see these shows. I want to, I want to be able to be around the arts community because I have a lot of artist friends that are all around the country, but I really wanted to be in that kind of space. But as it, as time went and time grew, I started feeling a little bit more comfortable. I know whenever whenever people are in town they come and visit and it's also I really like that space there's something about that space I'm one of those kind of people who I don't work with a lot of people I have a couple assistants but the, they're more so like people I've known since I was in high school so I'm kind of like I'm close to the community here I you know I grew up in this community here where you know I knew I've known at least like four or five of the past mayors, you know, went to high school with the I mean, I grew up and went to middle school with the, the current mayor. You know, it's like there is also this sense of like a community here, African-American community that I grew up in that was used to seeing black businesses and people that were politicians and saw a sense of black wealth from a different angle, which was like a beautiful feeling. I have memories of those things, even though those were very strange times post-assassination of Dr. King. Those were kind of different times, but it was also, um it was kind of beautiful. It's beautiful in a way in which I was like, I grew up, I feel like it's post-segregation, but still segregation. You know, it was a different kind of environment because I really feel like we have really never, ever really been truly integrated amongst each other to appreciate each other. I think that we're still working on that experiment. We're still trying to get it right. But Atlanta kind of gave me that space of family, even though I don't have a lot of family members here, it's just more so my mother, father, and my brother. So that's a, that's a good thing. It's complicated, it's difficult too. I don't necessarily have, you know, if a curator wants to come visit me, the curator has to come see me. The curator has to jump on a plane curator has to really find a way to get to me <laughs> so it's it's also it's you know it's it's good and good in a way too so it, the art world doesn't take me and and squeeze me and mold me and it's more like i can have my own personal life my family my you know kids or you know what i mean
0: i i, I you know in talking with artists over the last six or eight months the things you just talked about are the things everybody's been bringing up, especially the part about wanting to feel part of a place rather than living in a rich person's playground like Manhattan. I've heard that a lot. Another question, your use of materials, we talked about some of them, is is really specific. How have you acquired things like the ships and the military cloth and how important is the history of those objects themselves, like the blanket in the Argon Forest piece? How important is the history of the physical object you're using to you?
1: <laughs> I get in trouble with that sometimes. I remember there was a piece that I grew up in, the house, and it was a mirror. And there was this mirror and it had this hand And the, inside the mirror. When we were kids, me and my brother, we remember right before we went to school, we walked down the hallway and we look in that mirror just to look and see if we're okay. Mirror ended up being in a (laughs) piece. And my mother, she would always kind of get at me about that. But yeah, I try to figure out and I I live with a lot of objects. I feel like sometimes. And those are like some of my favorite things to do or go through antique shops. And part of it is going through the past and, and, you know, you're actually seeing all these old objects and reliving and trying to understand these histories, but you're also smelling them as well because they carry a certain smell or a certain age when you go into an antique shop. So I'm, I'm very fascinated with like stuff like that.
0: Radcliffe Bailey. (laughs) Thanks very much. (laughs) Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The modern art notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.